0: Table in the foyer there's a lot going on today isn't there? I don't know about your lives but I think all of us could say this is really the new year uh, School starts all kinds of things begin up and Uh, Church certainly starts back up again. It was great to see people in adult Sunday school, our victory youth starting up again, people in the foyer when people came in. Uh, It was so nice. Uh, What a blessing. Great to be here with my Bridge family. And um, as uh, we start the fall, we're going to be starting a new series. And that series is going to be out of the Book of Malachi. How many of you have ever studied the Book of Malachi? That's what we thought. Um, But we are excited about the book of Malachi. Um, As you may know or may not know, Malachi is the last prophet of the Old Testament. If you want to find Malachi in your Bible, just go to Matthew and go one back and you're in Malachi. It's the last book of the Old Testament, so it's pretty easy to find. Um, Malachi is, um, it's a letter, really, and kids, if you're answering the question, it's, it's a love letter to a wandering people. So Malachi is a love letter to a wandering people, and it reveals, as you see in that heading that we have on the outline, it reveals God's extraordinary love in the light of everyday apathy. God's extraordinary love in the light of everyday apathy. So how do we start this? Well, I think we have to start by, by looking back and, and seeing the context in which Malachi is writing in, So what I have, and and the young people have it in their outline, but I'm going to put it up now, is a timeline chart of the United Kingdom. And and starting where uh, the kingdom was united in 1040 BC with Saul, David, and Solomon. They were sort of the glory years, 120 years. And then we see that the kingdom was divided. uh, Israel, the north, and Judah, the south. And uh, in 606 BC, Judah, the south, went into exile. In Babylon, as a result of their rebellion, 70 years in exile, and then they are let go to rebuild the temple. Zerubbabel is let go, uh, leads the first wave of the uh, people of Israel back from Babylon. And uh, interesting, if you guys are filling your kids thing out, in, in 516... The temple was completed and dedicated. 516, it took them 22 years to build the temple again. And uh, so uh, as that happened, that was the time of Zechariah and Haggai. There was all these wonderful promises made of the restoration that was going on. Uh, But but you'll see like almost 100 years pass and uh, things aren't working out the way that everybody would hope they worked out. They're still waiting on the Lord. Uh, Ezra uh, comes with the second wave of the Jewish people. He brings reform. He brings revival. Uh, There's a sense that uh, we're we're following God again. We had sort of, you know, got weary of doing these things. Uh, None of us are aware of that or do those types of things. Apathy set in. uh, But there was this revival that took place. um, And then uh, Ezra went back uh, to report what was going on. And when Ezra went back, he reported that although the temple was up, the walls that surrounded the city of Jerusalem were still down. And Nehemiah, when he heard that report, was distraught. And he actually prayed for four months. He prayed for four months. And what the Spirit said to him was, you need to approach the king, tell him what's on your heart, and tell him that you want to go back and rebuild the wall around the city. A pretty risky thing to do to the king who's keeping your whole group in exile. But what we know is, is that when he went, the king was open to that. Not only did he let him go, provided resources and manpower. And so Nehemiah went. You can put that picture up now of uh, the next picture. And they began rebuilding the wall all around Jerusalem. Now think about that. This is 444 B.C. And it took 52 days to rebuild the wall around the entire city. It was an amazing work. And... You can put that up so they can see the, the scope of the city. This was the scope of the city all around. They built that wall all the way around the city in 52 days. Wow. We would love for our construction to go that quickly, wouldn't we? <laughs> but it's amazing. So this is sort of the context. And what's, what's happening is there, when, when uh, Malachi comes in, so he's coming in. After Nehemiah has come and rebuilt the wall, there's this excitement again. Nehemiah goes back, and before Nehemiah comes back for his second visit in that time, around 430 B.C., 436, Malachi is now going to prophesy and give a message. And what's happening at that time is that people are now disillusioned again because instead of this restoration of the glory uh, where they are the, the kingdom, that uh, God is using in the world and, you know, they have all the, their expectations of riches and all the different things that came with that. They actually were still a pretty tiny poor country where there was poverty, economic failure, consistent drought, and they were under a foreign power still. And at this point... In God's history, he was asking his people to live by faith and not by sight. He was asking them to live by faith and not by sight. Many times, as we all know, we're being asked to live by faith and not by sight. And so God raises up the prophet Malachi to bring a message to his people. Now, His style's a bit different than other prophetic writings, as if you've looked at this, or you will begin to. It's it's interesting because um, what happens there is that God speaks, God proclaims something, and then the people question God. And then God responds to their questions. And the people are questioning God out of a sense of doubting and discouraged hearts. That's what we see here. Doubting and discouraged hearts are questioning God. And I think all of us can relate to that in some way or another, can we not? Are there times when we have doubting and discouraged hearts and we question God? And here's God. He's responding to that. And he's revealing what's in people's hearts as he'll be revealing what's in ours. And so we're going to start by reading the five, First five verses of Malachi, and then we're going to go through each verse and look at what it's really saying to us today. So let me read Malachi chapter 1, 1 through 5. A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? And God responds, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance in in the desert jackals. Eden may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. The beginning of Malachi. So that first verse says, a prophecy, a prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. And that word prophecy is really the word oracle. And oracle has this idea of a weighty message a meaningful message, an urgent message. God is speaking, and he's calling for the people to gather and to listen. And most of the people Malachi was addressing had returned to Jerusalem from Babylon. It was a small group. It wasn't that a lot, maybe about 150,000 people at most. It's a ragtag group. But the Lord persists in calling them Israel. He persists in calling them the nation of Israel. And they were the true heirs of the old promises he had made to the people. And as a result of who they are now in Jerusalem, they were a sign that those promises would ultimately come true. Didn't feel that way. And this is where God was going to go with them. Well, let me ask a question of us today. Is this message from Malachi important for us to listen to today? How many of you are like, Malachi, gosh, I'm glad we're doing Malachi. I'm going to go listen to something else, something that's more pertinent. Malachi, that's one of the minor prophets. And he spoke so long ago, even his words are archaic. Malachi, can he really speak to our modern culture? Can he really speak into our context? I was thinking about this as I was studying it. And I began thinking about Jesus on the road to Emmaus. You remember that story, right? The disciples are discouraged. They're they're downtrodden. They can't believe that Jesus has been crucified. All their hopes are dashed. They're walking down the road away from Jerusalem, and a stranger meets them. Of course, we know the stranger turns out to be Jesus. Listen to what Jesus says to them in Luke 24, verses 25 through 27. Listen to these words. He said to them, how foolish you are and how so to believe that all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, if that's not a word from Jesus himself, that the prophet Malachi's message is uh, basically applicable today as it was in the time of Jesus, we're hearing it right from Jesus' mouth. And here's the response, Luke 24, 44. Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Were not our hearts burning within us? May God do that as we study Malachi and study his word. May our hearts burn within us, Lord. We ask that even now. May our hearts burn within us, Lord God, as we read your word. Holy Spirit, make this word alive. May it speak to us and encourage us and convict us and transform us in this day when we too experience disillusionment, when we too experience disappointment, when we too want to see the promises of God much quicker than they're coming. Lord, may this word speak and burn in our hearts. Do it for your glory, Lord. So that's how it starts. And then God says this. Verse 2, the first part of verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. This is how he starts out. I have loved you. I have loved you. God's first words to a disillusioned Israel are, I have loved you. And and this English, the way it's interpreted here, it's a little bit not quite right with the Greek verb form. The Greek verb form indicates a state of being rather than an action. It's more an ongoing response. I have loved you, and I still do, and I will continue to until the end of time. That's sort of the idea behind this. I have loved you and still and will. That's sort of, it's like a a parent with a rebellious child, right? I love you. I love you. Yeah, you got in trouble. I still love you. You can always come to me. Because our children are those that we are committed to, and we love them. And we will love them through all circumstances, as hard as it is sometimes. And these opening words indicate that an important theme of this message is love, God's covenantal love. This is a children's sermon. This is God's covenantal love. It's so important. And, And we misinterpret what God's covenantal love means. And I love what Ian Duguid has in his Reformed Expository Commentary. Let me put that quote up and let me read it. God is not merely expressing warm feelings toward his people. Rather, God is expressing something much stronger and more resilient, his covenantal love towards Israel. It is a settled attitude of being for someone whatever the circumstances not merely the expression of an emotional high. I'm going to read that again. It is a settled attitude of being for someone, whatever the circumstances. not merely the expression of an emotional high. Isn't that the same covenant we make when we're getting married? When we have committed ourselves, it's an attitude, it's love in action. It's saying, I love you no matter what, I'm with you. I'm for you. I'm going to come alongside you. My promises are yes and amen. You can trust me. You can even trust me in the waiting. This is covenantal love. That's what God is speaking about. And how then do the people respond to God saying to this? Well, verse 2b, but you ask, how have you loved us? How have you loved us, Lord? The people's immediate response was, show us the evidence. Remember that line, show me the money. Show me the evidence, Lord. How are you loving us? It's sort of just, it's shocking in some ways, speaking to God this way, right? How? How have you loved us? Show us the evidence, Lord. And what if uh, you were a spouse, your spouse came to you and said, I love you. And the response was, how have you loved me? I think if a counselor was listening to that, they would say, there's trouble in this relationship. Or maybe it's a parent and a child, right? And the same type of thing. I love you. Love me. Show me the evidence. Buy me that new car. We would say there's trouble in the relationship. There's doubt of the genuineness of the person's love. And in this relationship with Israel, they are at a point where they're doubting God's love for them. And God's revealing their hearts. You know, it's been a number of centuries since the high point of Israel's history, since the Exodus and the Promised Land and the reigns of David and Solomon and all the wonderful things that took place, even the excitement of the Second Temple that was rebuilt over 100 and some years ago and all the promises that surrounded it, they've all disappeared in light of the harsh realities of living everyday life in a country that's poor and a country that's under foreign rule in a country that's really struggling, and under the burdens of everyday hardships and unmet expectations, joy in God's love has waned. And it's replaced by a question. Wasn't life supposed to be better than this? Can anybody relate? Wasn't life supposed to be better than this? And God's going to answer their question. And here's how he answers it. Verses 3 through 5. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed and will rebuild the ruins, but this is what the Lord Almighty says, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land and people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Now, first thing we see here, guys, if you're answering your outline, God urges the people of Israel to look back into history and interpret their situation through the lens of the experience of the twin brothers, Esau and Jacob. They represent two nations, Israel and Edom. And here's where it goes. The choice of Jacob over Esau is a classic example of God's election. Yes, I did say the word. God's election. God chose Jacob instead of Esau to carry the blessing promised to their grandfather Abraham, right? God chose Jacob instead of Esau to carry the blessing promised to their grandfather Abraham. And when you look back at the story, in some ways Esau seemed to be the better candidate. Certainly he was the firstborn. He should have really had that. We know that he sold these rights for a bowl of porridge, but we know that both of them were not... They were pretty shady characters, both of them, if you look back at the history. Nevertheless, Jacob was chosen and chosen before an Esau were ever born. If you go back to Genesis 25, there was an oracle about them while they were in the womb saying that the older would serve the younger, and that God had chosen Jacob. Now, here's the thing. God did not hate Esau in the sense of cursing him or striking out against him or angry at him. Like this word, the way we look at it in the the context of our culture, uh, we can look at it a particular way. But you have to look at it in the context of covenant. And what is covenant? And there's a choosing in covenant and there's a not choosing in covenant. See, Esau was a blessed man. If you look at Genesis 33 or 36, you see Esau was prosperous, he had families, he had wealth, he had cities, he had a nation. So he was blessed in those ways. Yet, when God chose Jacob, he left Esau unchosen in regard to receiving the blessings given to Abraham. And God, in this particular illustration and comparison, he's contrasting the histories of two peoples. Both nations have sinned. Israel and Edom have sinned. Both are punished. But Israel, by God's free mercy, was forgiven and restored while Edom was left in misery, which it had brought upon itself by its own rebellion. These are important truths. These are very important truths. And, and you see this idea that of preference of Jacob over Esau, it extended to their descendants. The nations descended from Jacob, Israel. It was conquered by the Babylonian Empire. They were in exile, and so was the nation of Edom. Yet God restored Israel from exile. And at this point, as we see, as he explains, Edom has not been restored. And God chose to show his favor to Jacob and his descendants. Let that sit in for a second because I don't know how you think about God. But I know for me, it took a while for me to realize God is not like me. And I am so glad that God is not like me I am so glad that God is so much wiser, and my understanding of God is so much minimal in in the sense that God is greater in every way. Thank you that the God I worship is greater. I don't put him in the same context as me or even in the way I think. And that's important when we think about God's choosing and not choosing. And we're going to get to this in a second. But I want want you to think about that. How do you look at God? See, because a lot of us like to put God in the lens of just like me. So whatever's rational for me has to be rational for God. And, And whatever I don't agree with, then there's something wrong with God. But that isn't who our God really is. So the loving and the hating, it wasn't personal. It was providential. It was God's choosing and caring for a nation that he called to himself, who said belonged to him, who he gave the promises, who said would be blessing to other nations, and we're going to get to that in a second. And that's why Paul refers to the same event in Romans 9, 11 through 13. Listen to how Paul talks about this, and he talks about it as divine election. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, In order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. God's love for Jacob was a distinguishing love. It meant the line of Jacob, the Israelites, was chosen for a special purpose in the world, to be channel of blessing to the nation's and the source where the Messiah will be coming from. A distinguishing love. And I love uh, what Spurgeon said to this woman who asked the question. I have it there. Um, Andrew Newell has written this in the Enduring Word Commentary. Here, listen to this. I think this really puts it where it should be. We should remember the reason why election is brought up here. Not to exclude, but to comfort and reassure. God wants to comfort us and reassure us of his covenantal love to those he's chosen. A woman once said to Mr. Spurgeon, I cannot understand why God should say that he hated Esau. That, Spurgeon replied, is not my difficulty, madam. My trouble is to understand how God could love Jacob. You see how he turns it around. How could God love any of us who deserve wrath? Romans 3 tells us that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us, the wages of sin is death. All of us deserve God's wrath. And yet God, in his mercy, chooses to bring salvation. It's an act of mercy. It's an act of grace. And what's wonderful about it is, is that if we all know our hearts well, we know that apart from his mercy and grace, we will never choose God on our own. We will choose ourselves as God. And so he turns our hearts through irresistible grace, through regeneration, through the work of Christ, that we're able to come. And that's where Spurgeon goes with that. Be encouraged that God has chosen you to know, chosen you to receive mercy, chosen you to believe in the blood and resurrection, chosen you to know in your hearts through the Holy Spirit that you're not an orphan, but you're a child of God. This is the beautiful thing that he's talking about. Be assured, be comforted. Israel, just look at the histories. Look what's going on now. Even though you've been in exile and even though all that's happened and all the rebellion, yet guess what? You're still here. You're still a nation. And yes, you're waiting. But remember that Edom is no longer. This is part of my covenantal love. So how do we apply this today to ourselves? How do we look at this today? Well, we need to ask ourselves in our heart of hearts, do you and I have the same attitude as the people of Israel? Are we saying in our hearts to God, how have you loved me? How have you loved me? We don't find God's love very exciting anymore. The good news of Jesus redeeming us through his death and resurrection seems so distant and irrelevant to the daily grind of life. God, do you love me? Really? Have you seen my life lately, God? I mean, seriously, have you seen my life lately? Have you seen my relationships? Have you seen my finances? Have you seen my family, my health? If you're a student, have you seen my grades? Isn't life supposed to be better than this? How have you loved me, Lord? And I put a big B-U-T in front of his redeeming work and all that that entails, and I say, yes, Lord, but what have you done for me lately? Didn't you promise me the abundant life? It's not what I'm seeing, Lord. And and we begin to act like Jacob, and we begin to act like Esau, right? Jacob was this self-reliant schemer. So he would just go out and scheme and try to do everything, and He would try to make it on his own, and in doing that, of course, he was rebelling against God. He was destroying his life. He was destroying the life of people around him, so much so that his family had to kick him out and put him in exile themselves. How you doing? God isn't doing it for you. Are you relying on your self-reliance? I mean, we can even get to the point in our self-reliance to obey God's commandments, but not because we want to obey God, because we think if we obey his commandments, he's going to do something good for us. Now, that's a wicked heart. I know I've been there. And are we sometimes like Esau, indifferent? Just indifference, you know? Live life, God's not really a part of it. My daily life, God's not really in it. You don't see me wake up, pray. You don't see me praying through the day. I might go to church on Sunday, and uh, if there's a crisis, I might ask people to pray for me. But other than that, God's not really involved in my life at all. That's apathy. That's disillusionment. That's not really having a relationship with God. And it it leads to destruction. It leads to brokenness. It leads to such a lack of joy in your life. It, It leads to saying to God, I don't care if Jesus died for my sins, Lord. You're doing nothing for me today. And that's a dangerous place to be. dangerous place to be. Ian Dugood says this in this quote, and I think it's really important for us to understand it. You can put that up. Malachi is teaching us to interpret God's providence in light of his love rather than reading his love off our interpretation of his providence. He's teaching us to interpret God's providence in light of his love to see the things that are happening to us in light of the fact that we know God loves us, he's with us, he's behind us, he will never leave us, his promises are good, we can wait for him to do the things that he's going to do that he's promised to do. In the midst of all that, we can look at it through that lens, and it's so much different than looking at my circumstances and judging from those circumstances, does God love me? You see the difference? And Satan loves it when I begin judging God's love from my circumstances rather than knowing that God's love is in the circumstances. The one who's prowling around like a roaring lion to seek and destroy our faith loves it and uses it to lead us more and more into doubt and to begin to live as though we're not loved by the God of the universe as adopted children one of his greatest strategies. So brothers and sisters, where is Malachi going with this? Where is God saying? And I love it because here we are on the other side of that cross. And we can say, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Can you, can, can you say hallelujah to that? See, see, this is where the joy comes. Is that so old to you that you can't even have joy in that? Then we need to look at our hearts. Because every time I hear that, I should be saying, I rejoice that in my rebellion, that I was acting like God of my life, God sent Jesus to die in my place that I might know salvation and I might know glory and forgiveness and reconciliation and a future inheritance that is mine. Hallelujah. Every time I read that, there should be this joy in my heart because I have been pulled from the pit. And then Peter says it so well. He says, but you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you didn't receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. You are a chosen people. Rejoice in that. I'm a chosen Person, how many of you ever had to play a pickup game of something and you had to wait for people to choose you? Oh, and how embarrassing it was if you were to lay oh, I guess I'll take Angelo. But that's not who God is. God chooses us. He loves us. Covenantal love is all over us when he calls us to be a priesthood a people who intercede for others, a people who mediate for others, a people who proclaim good news for others. And as a holy nation, we are light to the world who so desperately need this covenantal love. And then therefore, out of 2 Corinthians, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Hallelujah. Chosen brothers and sisters, do you know that we can live out of an eternal perspective, that we can look at even the hard things of life, as Peter tells us, as refining us because our faith is much more precious than gold? That these things are light and momentary compared to the glory that is ours in Jesus Christ. And we are the recipients of that very last promise that he writes there, that this will extend to the nations. This morning, Malachi's message is speaking to us. We're going to be approaching the Lord's table. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. We're going to be approaching this table this morning, and this table is speaking to us right from this message. It's saying God is faithful. It's saying this is representative of my covenant love. That the promised Messiah has come. And he has brought salvation through the sacrifice, his perfect sacrifice on the cross. That his body, yes, his body was broken. His blood was shed all for those who have been chosen, all for those who have come and believed, all for those who have received irresistible grace and are regenerated by the love of God, all who could say, Abba, Father, I'm an adopted child of God, we come to the table remembering that this is the God who spoke from Genesis through the prophets, through Moses, and certainly through Jesus. May the joy of the Lord begin to fill your hearts. Brothers and sisters, in this moment, we not only look back, but the Spirit's alive in you right now, saying to you, this is true. God has not left you alone. God is for you and not against you. Remember, Yes, there are hard times. And Jesus promised that we would face adversity, but the promise doesn't end there. The promise says that I will be with you to the end, and then you will be living in a city whose architect and builder is God himself. And when I come back again, you will be like me. Hallelujah. Because you are chosen. Don't forget that. Chosen. And my covenantal love keeps you, surrounds you, protects you, encourages you, inspires you. The Spirit is speaking right now. And what a wonderful time it is because now we can bring our hearts to Him. And I just want to make a reminder, this is a meal of faith. If you're somebody here and you haven't believed, this is your moment to come to the Lord and believe while we're receiving communion. It's your moment to come and say, Lord, I see clearly that I am in